You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Hello and welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a review of history games and history-related games that were announced at this year's E3. For those of you who don't know, E3 stands for the Electronic Entertainment Expo, and it is easily the biggest event in digital gaming all year. It's filled with press conferences, announcements, trailers, and also includes awards. It's a lot of stuff. And as in years past, history games made up a lot of the material presented at this year's conference. To help me break down all of that historical goodness, I'm joined on today's episode by John Harney. Hey, John. Hey, Bob. So uh, I thought we'd start with kind of uh, our, our traditional uh, check-in with Ubisoft and Assassin's Creed. And uh, they, really, or they uh, released a new trailer uh, at their press conference for Assassin's Creed Odyssey, uh, which is going to be released on October 5th. And uh, in this game uh, is set during the Peloponnesian War, uh, which is at the end of the 5th century BCE. And this is kind of the famous uh, struggle between Athens and Sparta, the, the battle of the city-states. Uh, and this is a, you know, kind of a time period uh, that I think is it's ripe for uh, kind of optioning by Assassin's Creed by that series. Uh, but it's also one that's been kind of done to death uh, in historical scholarship and in historical fiction. Uh, so I am kind of interested to see how they're going to to balance that uh, historical scholarship and then also historical fiction. And, you know, especially that this game set even before Assassin's Creed Origins, this uh, Peloponnesian War is about, I, I think it's like 350, 400 years uh, before the events of uh, Assassin's Creed Origins and the Ptolemaic period. So I'll be curious to see how they what they do with that time period, since this is such a such a key area for both scholarship, but then also a lot of historical fictions related to Athens and Sparta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had the kind of same reaction. You know, Bob, you're much more up to date with the Assassin's Creed series than I am. How are they even justifying the games in the in the fiction now? Is it still is it still the animus? Is it is it just various kind of plots built around that or? Well, so not to spoil too much, but there there is still an animus, there is still a modern day element, and they really didn't unpack that very much in the last game. Uh-huh. You know, I'd say about eighty five to ninety percent of Origins was set in the Ptolemaic period in ancient Egypt. Um, but one of the kind of key connections between uh, Odyssey and Origins is going to be Alexander the Great. Uh, so Alexander the Great, uh, he comes about a hundred years after. Uh, the end of the Peloponnesian War, uh, more or less. Uh, and uh, he's a big part of the backstory for the Ptolemaic period uh, in Egyptian history. And then he's also a big part of the backstory for the story uh, or the plot in Assassin's Creed Origins. Uh, so I think that there's there's a good chance that there's going to be some leading into Alexander the Great, uh, leading into perhaps a DLC uh, or an expansion pack that looks at Alexander the Great. Uh, and you know, there's going to be some other major historical figures that they can you know, play off of. Uh, you know, it, this game, uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, it's going to feature two main characters. Uh, you get get to pick one. 
and uh, whichever character you choose, you are a descendant of the famous Spartan king Leonidas. This is mm-hmm. Leonidas of uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, 300, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, Zack Snyder, uh, etc. Uh, and so there, there is going to be some uh, historical figures that you can throw in there, kind of leading into uh, the long tradition of militarism of uh, Sparta and then going into Macedonia and Alexander the Great. Uh, Socrates uh, is also going to be in this game. So that'll be, that'll be wonderful uh, or could be horrific. I don't know. Um, but I, again, I think there's you know, looking at it from the perspective of the Assassin's Creed series, like you mentioned, I, I think this makes sense. Uh, because of that uh, that Greek connection mm-hmm. in uh, AC Origins backstory with Alexander the Great, mm-hmm. uh, so we'll see how that works. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting in the sense I wanted to ask about the Animus because some fans of the games, I'm kind of one of them. Although I kind of missed out the end, the end of Assassin's Creed Two was really intriguing, and I never actually found out what happened. But um, uh, there, there's a kind of a substantial group who were like, wouldn't it be great if they just kind of could skip the Animus present day stuff and have the history games? And I feel like Ubisoft is kind of kind of getting there already. And there's a lot of interesting meta stuff in the sense that um, I completely agree, obviously, because it's you know, ridiculous to disagree that um, Greece has been done to death, kind of, and historians are familiar with it. And it's saturated into Western popular culture in a way that maybe people aren't even recognizing anymore. But it is an interesting mm-hmm. difference. I think there's two things, which is one, a culture now that is there's a lot of desire especially among kind of the quote-unquote demographic that plays games in theory younger people that we know it's more complicated for different kind of stories what what will one day be kind of seen as a archaic term but diverse stories right um uh-huh. but we are at least we're several decades past kind of every quote-unquote educated young person being intimately familiar with greek myth i think aren't we hmm. are we you think so i'm not sure maybe i'm being too, i don't know yeah I, maybe i'm going too far yeah, i mean I feel like Sparta is still really big with just kind yeah. of layman historians. And, you know, maybe they don't have as much of awareness of the Peloponnesian War. Mm-hmm. But even besides that, I mean, you think about, you know, I think historians are really, really into the idea of attacking the Western mythos, attacking right. Western civ courses, uh, you know, attacking uh, in so many ways Thucydides and kind of the the legacy of historiography that came out of that. Um but at the same time, I think many people, layman historians in particular, they really love the Peloponnesian War. They love this kind of climactic battle between Athens, you know, yeah. kind of democracy, Sparta, um, you know, autocracy, oligarchy, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. Um, and, you know, there's some – I think there's some areas there where Assassin's Creed could do something interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, is it going to be a lot of kind of token 300ism, you know, with Sparta and Leonidas? Probably. <laughs> uh, but they could also talk about the legacy of slavery mm-hmm. uh, in Sparta or the treatment of women uh, in these areas or the actual mechanics of uh, and the feelings on uh, democracy within Athens, right? You know, questioning by Socrates, among others, you know, is this really a good form of government, right? Um, I think there's some interesting things that could be done there. Uh, but, you know, it remains to be seen. I mean, uh, I think there were some missed opportunities in Assassin's Creed Origins, obviously missed opportunities with, um, you know, Syndicate uh, in kind of puncturing holes uh, in the traditional historical record. So, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? Uh, but, I, you know, I would push back on this notion sure. that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of not 
it's not relevant. I think Sparta in particular is still very, very popular. Yeah, I guess it's an interesting transition because I, I can't help but think, and I'm actually cheating because I'm kind of throwing classical Roman to the same bucket, which isn't actually accurate. Oh, but I, dangerous. I know. Dangerous. But I'm just thinking of like kind of the toga movies of the 50s and 60s. But it's interesting. The sword and sandals. Right, yeah. yeah. But, you know, we need a bigger conversation another time when we have more time to really look back at Assassin's Creed as a series and see if there's been how much kind of growth there's been, you know, because you're mentioning slavery and genders are great points. And those are both topics, definitely slavery, that this series has focused on quite a lot in a, in a bunch of different games. And so it becomes this really interesting question. Like, I'd love to see it because then, you know, then you'll have, um, you know, you'll have, uh, oh, forgive me, what was the Caribbean set Assassin's Creed that, of course, you were the slave liberating Liberation. Yeah, liber- yeah, there you go, liberation, with the really unfortunate mechanic that everybody remembers. But you have that, and you have Egypt, and now you have this new game. Oh, that was uh, that was Freedom's Cry. Sorry. Oh, right, yeah. Freedom's Cry. You. So, yeah, yeah. Sorry about no, that. No, so, so it'll be um, – I don't know. That's kind of a conversation for another day. I'm kind of intrigued that you know we had our little mini break from Assassin's Creed, as it were, because Origins feels like it was weeks ago. Which I guess it kind of almost was. It kind of yeah, was. It kind of was. was. If you count the the DLC that's come out since then, it was it was weeks ago. This new game does look very. It looks to have similar RPG mechanics to uh, to Origins, though, right? So that's clearly they're clearly sticking with it. They they're quickly you know kind of moving into the RPG range of something like Mass Effect right. or The Witcher. There's dialogue trees. Mm. There's branching quests in Odyssey, uh, and then there's going to be multiple game endings with AC mm. Odyssey. So. You know, here we go, right? Right, um, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll see how that turns out. Uh, moving on, uh, we've also got another big announcement. Uh, this one from Bethesda, uh, and they are making uh, surprise, surprise, a new Fallout game <laughs> called Fallout seventy six. Uh, and this game is going to take place around Fall uh, around Vault seventy six, which is located in West Virginia. Uh, the game picks up about 25 years after the nuclear war in the Fallout series that devastated the Earth. Uh, so there was a, a lot, a lot of trailers, a lot of uh, coverage of this game, a lot of uh, playing of uh, "Take Me Home, Country Roads" uh, <laughs> by John Denver. Uh, but what's really interesting about this game, besides the setting, uh, besides uh, you know the kind of where this play takes place in the timeline, is the fact that this is going to be the first online multiplayer game in the Fallout franchise. And it's going to be basically entirely multiplayer. You can play mm-hmm. uh, much of it by yourself, but all the other human players in the game are going to be actual human players and not NPCs, not non-player characters. So that is that is just wow. Mm-hmm. That is that is an incredible thing to to think about. And you know, how is that going to work? I I'm I'm just blown away. And what do you what do you make of that, John? I'm really interested in it. I mean, I think that um it's kind of something we're almost waiting for all these AAA companies to crack a little bit because I think of games like Rust, um uh, Ark, you know, the kind of dinosaur mm-hmm. kind of alternate kind of reality game. Um and those can be good experiences, they can be awful experiences and it kind of it it it's it, it, it's tough. And it's interesting because I feel like if you're on the inside of that, if you're having a good experience with it, you forget or you lose contact with how difficult it is to get into it, right? And for a game like Ark or for a game like uh Rust, it's like whatever. Rust in particular is pretty I suppose hardcore would be the word for it, you know. No nobody nobody's crying if you can't get in. But Bethesda, you know what I mean? Like uh, they, they yeah. say no to at ten thousand extra players, but Bethesda can't mess around with that. So, so yeah. the trick is: can Bethesda make something 
super accessible. And I've been playing playing a few things, but I was playing a bit of Subnautica the last few weeks, which is a great game. It's a, it's a single player game, but it's basically an exploration tap survival game, and it's very very good. And it reminds me of God; those games are fun when they're done well. And and although um, you know. Uh, writer I forgot the name of, which is embarrassing from Rock Paper Shock and was pointing out this morning on Twitter, one must be extremely careful and have lots of grains of salt when it comes to E3. Um, I'm excited by the possibility they get the balance right because Fallout's going to bring that crowd. And, and yes. Fallout 4 had the kind of house building stuff, which some of us got into and some of us didn't, but there's probably enough of a base there to really build on it. And that would be exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, when you think about Fallout Four and the base building stuff and the management of, uh, you know, small towns, uh, small settlements, this makes a lot of sense to make it into a survival game like this. And you know, there was also survival elements. There were survival mods, uh, famously for Fallout New Vegas as well. So this is kind of something they've been mm-hmm. working around with for the last several years, last half decade or so. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when you think about Bethesda, when you think about Bethesda's Fallout games, those games are janky as hell. Yeah, I know. And those are janky games for single-player games. Now, what if you add in multiplayer hosting on top of that? That just sounds like it could be either – it could be fantastic or it could be one of the biggest bombs in history I know, in I, video games. I was watching the trailer and – um it's showing the combat and I was like, God, the combat looks great. And then, then I thought to myself, that isn't how combat works in that engine. I've played like five games in that engine. Um, yeah. And like the hardcore Bethesda people, and I've heard this from various people, including uh, friends of mine on the Starting Point podcast saying, you know, the new engine is surely around the corner. Like to what extent is this kind of the last thing they can get out in this engine? Um, mm-hmm. I love the premise though. I love this idea. I love this idea of it's, you know, it's the tricentennial. We're going to reclaim the US. I think the, Although, admittedly, well, it's going to be interesting. There's going to be some kind of single-player element, so I have no idea how much storytelling there's going to be. But I love that kind of framing, you know, because that 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 just rings true to me. If I feel there's so much depth there to mess around with um, because, that you know, it's this monumental moment because you're reclaiming the land. You're also reclaiming the U.S. You're reclaiming the past. Um, I, I found that trailer to be exciting. Now, you, they might never build all that much on it, um, but the iconography of 2076 is kind of laced through the whole thing, you know, and it's just it's just yeah. fascinating. Like if you just go on YouTube and look up Bicentennial stuff, you know, it's just an interesting moment in U.S. history, this kind of remembrance yes. of itself. It is. It's it's funny. I just got done reading um, uh, Stephen King's The Dead Zone, which takes mm-hmm. place in 1975, 1976. And there's all this kind of, you know, looking back and looking forward in U.S. history around the Bicentennial. And I kind of see that happening now. You know, I think this game comes out in an interesting political moment where there is this huge debate in American society, much of it centered around the Appalachians mm-hmm. about what does it mean to be an American? Right. You know, what does it mean? You know what does America mean? Does it still mean this kind of old, this old heartland? You know, right. taking home country roads. And right. there's been a lot of that in popular culture. You know, you think about um, uh, hillbilly elegy. You think about uh, the fact that this John Denver song about West Virginia has been a lot. It has been coming up a lot in popular culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can think of it's a big part of uh, the recent Soderbergh film, Logan Lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also referenced in Alien Covenant. So this is kind of a it's a weird it's a weird moment in which I think you've got a lot of people in popular culture and certainly game developers thinking in this same similar vein about you know taking stock of American society uh, and it's weird to think about that in terms of a video game but I think that's really what Fallout is all about right it's all about kind of 
uh, poking holes in Americana and you know stretching out uh, these ideas about American history and American culture, and that's really exciting. And I think you know I, I just I really I'm really worried <laughs> about not not necessarily the 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 uh, kind of cultural elements of this game, but I'm really worried about the actual mechanics. Yeah. Of this game, I'm I'm very scared for Bethesda. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to know, and we'll have to wait and see. Again, like how much of it is going to be here's the single player track that you can do, or they're going to be quests and things like that, or is it simply going to be here you go? We, we told you how to put four walls together and put a roof on them. Now you do you. You know here here's here's your mechanic for um trying to get someone not to kill you and be friends with them instead. You know, kind of like 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 an arc thing, like a tribe thing. Yeah, I mean, part yeah. but something I something that we will definitely talk about when it comes out. And I don't know how much would actually be in the game because I agree. And I think the trailers for the games are excellent that like, you know, there's such a great grip here on deconstructing kind of an Americanness. And there's this wonderful and Fallout's had this from the very start, right, of of it's not so much, although it kind of clearly is, but it's not so much the early 21st century thing they're parodying as, as, as it is. What if things had stopped in the 50s or something close to it? Yeah. Um, but of course, there's so much in American history and American literature about the land, right? You know, <laughs> and the kind of connection to to the land and, and and that part of this homeland thing. And so I just, I'm curious. I wonder if that kind of those physical or even metaphysical connections to, to nature or something that will be alluded to in any way in this game, mm. or is it something that we will talk about a lot? And it's something in the episode that you did unfollow it for, for YouTube. I remember John Hunt discussing, you know, what would the land look like after a nuclear attack? So there's, there's stuff that's yeah. been there, but I, that would be intriguing. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, one of the other things that's promised in this game is that uh, Todd Howard, uh, in explaining this game for Bethesda during the press conference, uh, said that it's also going to include elements of West Virginia folklore. Mm-hmm. So there, West Virginia is kind of one of these areas that's ripe with a lot of uh, uh, stories of nature, uh, you know, myths about the past, about West Virginia, uh, but then also kind of a lot of horror uh, stories that come mm-hmm. out of West Virginia. You know, it's kind of the Appalachian Mountains and what you can find up there. So, be curious to see how that how that turns out. Uh, but I think the the survival game elements of this are really what I'm I'm curious and worried about. I mean, you know, you'd referenced Rust. You know, mm-hmm. kind of hardcore right. survival games. Todd Howard <laughs> kind of famously quipped during the press conference uh, that uh, Bethesda was going to be offered a soft core. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Experience. Yeah. Uh, so we'll we'll see. Um, you know, it, I'm just fascinated, you know, an entirely online fallout game mm-hmm. with, without traditional NPCs. I mean, that's just a, that is a wow statement mm-hmm. there. Um, uh, so anyways, uh, fallout 76, uh, is supposed to be released on November 14th, mm-hmm. uh, coming up about a month before that, October 19th, uh, we'll see the release of Battlefield 5 or Battlefield V. I don't know really what people are calling it. But Battlefield 5, uh, which uh, sees the series return to World War II. Of course, Battlefield kind of uh, famously uh, online multiplayer experience uh, back in the early 2000s focused on uh, 1942. Now they're coming back uh, to World War II. And this game is going to be another multiplayer focused game with only uh, kind of sprinklings of singer player elements, kind of what we saw in Battlefield 1, where there will be a set of uh, tutorial missions uh, in which they'll kind of teach you how to, to onboard onto the multiplayer uh, side of things. Uh, and this uh, set of tutorial missions, however, is going to focus on the role of female soldiers 
uh, during the Second World War. Now, we haven't gotten a really in-depth discussion of this from Electronic Arts, but uh, you know, there's a female soldier on the cover of uh, every version of the game I've seen so far. And uh, you know, I think this is a really nice addition um, to the series and to history games set in World War II more generally. You know? uh, and uh, you know, it's great to have uh, the role of female soldiers during that war uh, kind of recognized. But you know, as you can expect, and as you probably already know, this announcement was met with a lot of uh, knee-jerk attacks based on uh, the idea of quote-unquote historical accuracy. Uh, which is something we've talked a lot about on the show. And it's basically those kind of claims about historical accuracy are just a stand in for uh, misogyny or racism. Uh, so I don't really want to go into much of those. But what was your reaction uh, to this announcement, John? Because this is something that we found out about, I guess, a couple of months ago. Yeah. It was kind of released really early. Uh, but we got to see a little bit more of the game here at E3. Yeah. I mean, I think what I'm interested in, and I, I won't talk about it for too long, because as you said, there's there's a lot of good reasons not to dwell on it too much. The whole issue of like female competence and stuff. Um, I do think that people perhaps kind of miss how history and video games interact in a super interesting way. Um, and because the nature of video games, as lots of game studies, books and articles will tell you, like you, you're not playing a game to recreate an historical experience because the second you do something in the game, you, you're not recreating it anymore. Um, but uh, I'm encouraged and I'm excited. And it's, it's really interesting because Battlefield 1, uh, the single player stuff, it almost feels like the, um, the hero journey stuff you do in the sports games now, in the EA sports games, where it's like, hey, this is fun. It doesn't take that much time and it's kind of superfluous. That's what Battlefield 1 felt like a little bit to me. But they really worked hard on, the kind of, on a theme and they worked super hard on, on really kind of getting across if not necessarily uniform story as much, but like a sense of like, they really worked hard on tone in battlefield one, yes. you know? And when I think about when I think like a year or two ago, maybe let's say two years ago, like before call of duty, world war two, if you had told me a oh, world war two is coming back in video games, I would have just groaned, you know, and like, Oh my God. Um, but battlefield one is like, Hey, this is, this works. Like I can see this, work. Yep. this is fun. And going, jumping back to Assassin's Creed for a second, you know, the footage of the guys in Toga is laughing, you know, and the familiar headdress and the stuff that we're all so familiar with. If you can tap into that effectively, it can be extremely powerful. This could be great. And and for, you know, for reasons that aren't ideal, World War One doesn't have the position in our popular imagination World War Two does have. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's a lot, I'm, I think there's a lot of exciting possibilities there. So, I mean, I, and, and part of it as well, again, maybe I'm giving the benefit of the doubt from Battlefield One, but with, with without a huge amount of detail out at the moment, well, if I base them on the last thing they did, I think there's lots and lots of reasons to be supportive and sure. to be excited, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think on the whole, Battlefield 1 was a net positive mm -hmm. experience just because of what you said. Oh, it's not a really well-recognized war, particularly in North America. Uh, and I think Battlefield 1 has done quite a bit to change that, especially, you know, kind of anecdotally mm -hmm. speaking from people I've talked to, especially in my classes. Uh, and I, I'm hoping, you know, Battlefield 5 or V or whatever the hell uh, can do the same sort of thing. And, you know, taking the story of World War II that we get from most popular fiction and kind of recentering on a group of people that we don't hear a lot about, right? You know, uh, female soldiers. And um, I'm really excited to get my teeth uh, into this game, uh, particularly because of that reason. I know that in the past couple of decades, there's been so much phenomenal work done about female soldiers, uh, done about, uh, you know, kind of 
uh, female non-combatants during the wars, world wars. Um, you know, I can think of most of it really done really well on the Eastern Front, mm-hmm. uh, especially the Second World War. And so I'm really excited to kind of highlight a lot of that scholarship uh, through this game, through episodes of History Respawned on it. So I'm I've got my fingers crossed for this one. And, you know, like you said, I think they they've engendered a lot of goodwill, uh, particularly with me. Uh, when it came with Battlefield 1. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they can keep that up with uh, Battlefield 5. I want to say too, I think there's this very interesting, I don't know if cyclical is quite the right word, but there's definitely this relationship between, you know, popular history tends to focus on individual stories because that's people like to read about people. You know, mm-hmm. I was at a conference AHA in January about writing for public audiences and this very successful writer said exactly that. He said, people like to read about people. That's what they like to read about, which is tough, he said, because for me as an historian, I really want to write about systems, you know, and talk about, you know, the environment and intersections and stuff. But as of course, as we know, um, our field in the last 30 years has really ramped up its efforts to kind of, as it were, go back to the sources, but also find new sources and try and construct this sense of like, well, who are, who are individuals within this massive environment? And I, I just think that, so I think that what we're seeing, and we saw it in Battlefield 1, I think, you're seeing this storytelling desire to focus on individuals because you can craft drama around it. And there's mm-hmm. lots and lots of ways you can bring in all kinds of cool new historical stuff. So for example, like, you know, most, the most obvious example is female competence, right? Um, but beyond that, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. And even simple things like African-Americans in World War I and stuff like that, you know, these, oh, these, are, know. Yeah. these are things that can be done subtly or not subtly, but the value is huge. And, and I, think, I think we're seeing that, I think, almost through a fluke, I think we're seeing more and more intersection of the, the hard historical research being done, the public doesn't pay a huge amount of attention to, and I don't really blame them all that much, versus the, the, the historical kind of popular culture that's coming out. Yeah. And, you know, this gets to the heart of an argument that I've been wanting to make for a while, and I've been working on this article about it. But essentially, my idea is that these games could be a lot more interesting if they were actually more historically accurate. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, if these games really kind of cleaved a little bit more closely to the kind of cutting edge historical research that's being done on this stuff, I think they would find a lot of those really cool, interesting stories, a lot of those cool, interesting characters that they've been just so desperate to kind of center these games on. It's just that they've been looking, you know, they've been optioning off films, they've been optioning off novels rather than kind of the work that historians have been doing, uh, particularly over the past 20, 25 years right. of really kind of reevaluating some of these major stories in world history. And, um, you know, it's almost, it's funny, you know, cause we say, oh, well, we, we don't, we don't want video games to be historically accurate cause they're not fun. Well, I mean, my counter argument to that is that the narratives themselves, right, that kind of underlie these games could be much more interesting if you were much more historically accurate uh, in certain areas. Yeah, so I think there's a, you know, I, listen, I'm an historian. I've dedicated my life to this field. And I went to the Smithsonian a few months ago and I was like, huh, I didn't know this about African-American airmen in World War One. Like, I didn't know this, yeah. you know. Um, and history, unfortunately, history has this reputation in broader society the more historically accurate they get, it gets, the more boring it will become. And it's like, it doesn't, that doesn't have to be true. <laughs> it yeah. can be true, but it doesn't and have that, to And be I think true. that's a problem historians have yes. too. They yes. think that way as well. Yes. And I think that's wrong. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> we're going over here. Uh, so <laughs> uh, let me, let me quickly race through uh, the next couple of games. Uh, so all of uh, we have right Battlefield games. 5. <laughs> yes. Sorry, yeah. Uh, we have uh, we have Battlefield Five. That's going to be late October of 2018, and then we got a couple of uh, 2019 games that were announced. Uh, one by Ubisoft, uh, which was Skull and Bones, and I think this had a teaser trailer 
last year's E3, but we got to see some more gameplay footage this year. Uh, and this is a game that's going to be set uh, in the Indian Ocean, I think in the late 18th century, uh, third person uh, pirate game. And it really kind of takes a lot of the material from uh, Assassin's Creed Black Flag, also developed by Ubisoft. And it's kind of reimagining it for like an open world pirate game. Uh, and I'm, I'm really curious about the depiction of the British Empire here, uh, particularly in the Indian Ocean era. Uh, so I'd be very curious to see how that turns out. Uh, the other game I wanted to quickly get through was uh, Wolfenstein. Mm. Uh, Bethesda um, announced a kind of a – I don't know if it's a standalone game or if it's kind of like a, a short uh, DLC experience. But uh, they announced a game called Wolfenstein the Young Blood, uh, which I believe is going to be released early next year. Uh, and this story follows uh, B.J. Blazkowicz's twin daughters uh, as they fight Nazis in 1980s Paris. Uh, so this is a co-op game experience, and there's really not a lot of details on how this game fits into the main storyline of the kind of Bethesda-recreated Wolfenstein world. But uh, it does kind of make you wonder about, well, they just did Wolfenstein 1 and 2. What does this mean for Wolfenstein 3 if we're already jumping forward into the 1980s you know does that mean wolfenstein 3 will be set in the 1970s well it doesn't mean 1990s right. i i really don't know what to make of this but there was really just a complete absence of detail <laughs> about this game i was uh, the little flashes of kind of you know nazi paris in 1980 got me excited like it's hard to know what they'll do with it um, but there, there's my my instant reaction was, oh, I guess the revolution didn't work, or at least didn't work kind of immediately. There's kind of storytelling stuff that's, or or maybe it worked in America, and now they're coming back to Europe yeah. to kind of to clean them up. I don't know. The game, I could be wrong. The game kind of seemed to hint like one character was more of a long range sniper type, and the other is like an assault type. But I I I don't. I think that was just me reading too much into it because by the end they're kind of united um but i'm excited about paris i'll i because I, I, I loved the first kind of i don't know if reboot's quite the right word but um wolfenstein new order did awesome things i thought with kind of you know what the nazis would do to the to the old world once they kind of were victorious and so mm-hmm. i'm curious to see what happens in paris and um i i just kind of can't help but wonder you know when we talked about uh the last game uh last year um i can't help but wonder so is this going to continue being completely to the wall insane or not like you know like tonally like what's going to go on here like is the second game going to prove to be this really interesting exciting experiment with tone and kind of exploitation um i i mean i would assume there's going to keep going with it so i'm kind of curious to see what happens there with youngblood yeah i am too um and so then that brings us to uh the samurai portion uh, of this E3 show. So there were uh, three major Samurai games that were either announced or were at least uh, kind of uh, the coverage was added upon uh, with new trailers uh, during this year's E3. Uh, so the first one uh, that we thought we might talk about since we covered it on History Respawn uh, was Neo. So there's a new Neo game coming out and we just got a, a short teaser trailer uh, of this game. So I was wondering, John, did you get a chance to, to see that trailer? What, what did you make of it? If- yeah, I did. I thought it was a great like hype building trailer. It was kind of funny because, forgive me, I'm not keeping track on sales and things like this. I know that Neo was successful, but what was interesting to me was, you know, although it was kind of, it became evident very quickly what it was, it was um, structured as a reveal, like a surprise at the end or like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, and then, and then the Neo music comes in that if you've played Neo is just constantly playing all the bloody time. Um, they kind of, and, and, and they really, um, all we know is that there's, there are only these large demon figures. 
um, and they can they they turn this regular human into a demon. And so I was kind of half curious. Does that mean that you're going to be going to be controlling a half demon, half person thing beyond what's already happened? Mm. Um, I don't know. Um, but it, it, and then what 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 accent will this uh, this demon character have? <laughs> I know. Will it be Irish again. <laughs> I still love I still love that Neo had like an Irish samurai and um and a spirit guide of what with my daughter's name is just fascinating to me. Um, so I don't know. That was the, um, the guy in the video looks Japanese, but it was interesting because I it was, what, what intrigued me is that all three games are so kind of close together, um, and the Dark Souls game, as it were. Um, you know, the, the latest from software samurai game, uh, is, it's just funny because it reminds me of Neo, which is kind of unfair because Neo is totally built on dark souls. So, you yeah. know, this kind of mixture of spirituality and the, and, and, and life yeah. and death and everything. And, and actually when you see, when you, when you watch all three trailers back to back, which I did this morning again, um, cause I'm excited. How many times, how many, how many times <laughs> does that make for you? About 50 times to <laughs> yeah. watch the trailers? Well, the Neo two one, Neo, I mean, you know, this was self-evident anyway, but Neo really jumps out as the, as the, as the completely off the wall one, or as the more adventurous tonally one. The other two, the one I'm interested in is Ghost of Tsushima kind of interests me because. um, So Ghost of Tsushima, which is being developed by Sucker Punch, uh, famous for the infamous series. Uh, This game is going to be set during the Mongol invasion of Japan, which was in the 13th century. Yes, 1270s and 1280s. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, and look at this world historian here. <laughs> and very famously, uh, miserably failed. Um, the first one in 1274, I want to say it was, the uh, the Mongols didn't, uh, they kind of, they didn't send as much of a force as perhaps they could have. Um, and uh, and they were fought, they were fought back. Um, the second one, famously, this, this great storm comes down the Sea of Japan and sinks a lot of the Mongolians because the Mongolians were not natural sailors. Um, right. And so a, a greatly diminished force hit the coast and were then completely annihilated by uh, by the Japanese. Um, and they call that wind a kamikaze, a kamikaze wind. Um, <laughs> so, and Tsushima, Ghost of Tsushima, the title of the game, Tsushima is an island that is, I want to say, halfway between Southwest Japan and Korea. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it was a place that saw a significant conflict in both invasions. Um, so that's that's intriguing to me. Um, they opened the video at E3 with this guy who's very famous on YouTube for playing various wind instruments, uh, a, a white Westerner play, dressed up as a kind of a traditional Japanese you know, medieval guy. You know, I you know, take it or leave it. I mean, um, maybe maybe bat a couple eyelashes with that. So, well, luckily uh, they didn't quite go that far. But and uh, I, I know he's playing the instrument, so they're really kind of playing an atmosphere and everything. A beautiful looking game. Um, and I don't know what to think. There's this scene two thirds of the way through where you kind of effectively there's a mechanic where you can. I, I guess I'm assuming if you if you hit the combos right, you can highlight the next person and kind of chain it up. Maybe I'm wrong, uh, but it felt very kind of like an Assassin's Creed influence type thing. So yeah, I mean it is it's third person and it does right. seem like it has a huge stealth mechanic yes. in which you are basically fighting uh, as uh, you know this Japanese character fighting for Japanese freedom. Uh, but doing so without much support, it looks like you're kind of infiltrating Mongol, yeah. um, you know, bases and defenses. Yeah, which is which is which is really interesting. I mean, something that the game does that all three of the games are doing, and we know this, even though we saw one minute of Neo Two, we know this from the first Neo, is making a, this kind of wonderful um, use of 
the landscape of Japan and 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 the land of Japan and and the ecology of Japan as presented in the games is kind of somewhere in between what it actually was and is and how it's mm-hmm. represented in Japanese art. You know, as you get these beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, waving fields of wheat and then the, you know the cherry blossom tree in in the in the in the distance and everything else. So so Neo two, the Neo games deliberately participate in an imagined Japan. That's clearly what they're deliberately doing. Um, Tsushima kind of is Ghost of Tsushima's leaning on it. Um, I, I was excited by the action and the sneaking and everything else. I wonder how it'll play out narratively. Um, interesting choice too to go with just kind of Western accented voices. We just made the comments yes. in Neo, you have this Irish protagonist, but everyone else is Japanese. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think that's an interesting decision you've got to make when it comes to fiction. Um, yeah, it's just an interesting Especially- decision. Yeah, especially if you're trying to sell primarily to a you know a Western audience to a North American audience, so right. and if, it kind of seems like one of those concessions you'd have to make. And if you are Westerners making the game, I think there's a lot to be said for kind of um, recognizing your limits. Do you know what I mean? Um, like, you know, do we feel comfortable? What kind of vocal performances are we going to want out of Japanese voice actors or? And so on. Yeah. So it was interesting. And then and then finally, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. I'm crazy excited because it's Dark Souls or it's From Software, I should say. Yeah, developed by From Software, uh, you know, set in the Sogoku period, uh, roughly 16th century CE. And it looks like it kind of looks like a Souls game. You know? It looks a lot um, like a Souls game. I mean, they're definitely bringing in mechanics and everything else. Again, what interests me, you know, the Dark Souls games, one of the things that I think Dark Souls are famous for their difficulty. But for me, at least, the real draw in kind of learning how to play the game and not want to throw your controller out the window, you become really heavily invested in the atmosphere of the game. And it turns out the atmosphere of the game is done really, really well, mm-hmm. down to the kind of weaponry and clothing and everything that you can do. The video opens with this burning of a temple. Now, um, as you say, the game is set much later, but there's this very, very famous temple burning in the 12th century the burning of the temple at Nara, which is referenced in lots and lots of fiction for centuries after, and everyone knows all about it. Um, and there's this heavy, it's heavily involved in this very famous Japanese tale, Tale of the Heiko, that talks all about, kind of basically narrates kind of the emergence of Japan. And Tale of the Heiko really, or well, the emergence of 12th century Japan, it really puts the samurai in the center of all of it. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited. Of the three samurai games, Sekiro is the one I'm most excited about because if from software stick to what they've been doing for the last 15 years, which I think they will, they're going to kind of let atmosphere and stuff like that, tell the kind of story for them a lot. Um, and I, I'm excited to see what they actually, I'm excited to see how that kind of pans out. Um, because yeah. there was just lots of, lots of hinting at themes that you just see in a lot of samurai stories anyway. Yeah. So like you know, yeah. burning a religious location, obviously it's not unique to Japan. Don't get me wrong, but, but in samurai stories is such a heavily visited trope i'm really curious to see what's going to go on there yeah yeah so it's in other words you know depending on when these games hit it's going to be a very busy next year and a half for you yeah exactly yeah and you know we might we might have to think about kind of the linear exposure i know in the past you've kind of wanted to maybe get a little bit away from studying just uh you know asian history depicted in video games so maybe i can maybe i can take one of these bullets uh here you know whether it's neo 2 or Maybe goes to Tsushima, whichever one. It sounds like you're you've got your heart set on from software and Sekiro. Yeah, I'm calling it dibs on that right now. But you've uh, got dibs on it. But you've it's, got it. It's too. good to to have kind of an external um, 
a fresh kind of view of it too. I think you know when I when sure. I when I um I have to say though it's funny if you're interested if you're interested in history and your video games and you like Japanese history, you are well served and you have been well served for <laughs> 30 years. No exaggeration. Yeah. Since the, but, the very origination of video games right. and history, basically. But that, that trend is never going to stop. It's, yeah. it's just never going to stop. So, yeah. so congratulations <laughs> to the, the panel <laughs> files in the audience. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, so I thought we might take a moment to just kind of talk about some of the non-history games uh, that we were excited by. Uh, from E3. And I know for both of us, I think we were really excited to see that they're coming out with a remade version of Resident Evil 2. Yes. Uh, so what did you make of that trailer? I'm just giddy in general. I think a lot of people our age have a very personal connection to that video game. Yeah. As as important as Resident Evil was, and it's a good game and everything else, there's... I don't know why. Resident Evil 2 just broke through a wall. Like Like people... Everyone seemed to play Resident Evil 2. Yeah. You know, it was just such a big deal. And there's so many moments in that game, like moments in the game that are just iconic. Um yeah. I'm I'm I I was just giddy. And it, and 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 we're it's we're at such a point now. I don't know if you saw this, but um uh Tim Schafer got together a bunch of the cast and Jack Black to help out to do a about an hour long reading of sections of Grim Fandango. Did you see that at all? No, I didn't because it was the, it's the twentieth anniversary of the game, and so uh, Jeff Keighley was hosting a show at E three, and so for an hour, Tim Schafer and a bunch of actors and and a bunch of original actors and Jack Black, who is now officially a friend of Tim Schafer's, I guess, did this read through, and um, it's 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 entertaining. It's it's really interesting to see it, but it's also intriguing that like that's how mature this kind of culture is now, and that's that's the environment yeah. into which Resident Evil Two is coming. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, it makes me think a lot about, you know, when they remake a major Hollywood film from about 30 or 40 years ago, uh, you know, and how that kind of brings up all this kind of nostalgia. Uh, I think the same thing's going on here with video games, like you said. And Resident Evil 2, I mean, for me, it's uh, it built on so well about what made Resident Evil 1 such a success, but mm-hmm. it, it did so much more, right? It mm-hmm. was a sequel that didn't pull any punches, right? I mean, it really went for it. It basically... They created two wholly different games, That's right. right? You, fo- That's you right. follow either Claire or you follow Leon. And I mean, they're completely different storylines, mm-hmm. uh, essentially. And I can remember replaying both of those storylines multiple times and seeing how those storylines kind of interacted with one another over the course of that game. It was just, it was a fascinating idea. And it was, it was kind of like, I don't know what to compare it to. It's kind of like, you know, having uh, the same movie told from two different perspectives, uh, but it came in the form of a, an interactive experience. It was, it was incredible. So I, I can't wait to play this. Yeah, it was it was huge. And Resident Evil is such an interesting series because Resident Evil Two has all these breakout things of basically these huge super weapons, and then later Resident Evil games just went way too far. Like Nemesis, you know, yeah. even three was like, oh, yeah. what's happening? And then four, four is getting a remaster um, very soon again. Like these are just. Um, it's fascinating. I love that series. Love that game. I love, I love, I love how, I love how the game community, the video game community globally, however you want to define that, uh, loves this series and cherishes it. Yeah. And it's just fascinating to me that we're at such this this meta point in our history of games. Right? It's just it's it's absolutely um, fascinating to me. Yeah. So, any other games for you that kind of stood out? Non-history games for me. So, E3? I think that um, 
the two that step out, staying with the kind of meta history thing would be um, Beyond Good and Evil 2. And I think I think in years to come, we'll look back on Beyond Good and Evil 2. I worry that we'll look back and go, God, those are amazing cinematic trailers for that terrible game came out. But who knows? I mean, who knows what it's going to be or isn't going to be? I think Beyond Good and Evil is one of the, I've never played it. It's one of the, you know, it's one of these games that I guess you're supposed to pretend you've played it whether you have or not. Um but the cinematic stuff looks amazing, and I, I don't even know what to begin to think of it. But that that game, again, that game only seems to exist because of this self-conscious historicizing that, that the game's, fandom, game's fandom does. And I, I make that sound like I'm not, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I, just, it's fa- I think that's the whole reason that game exists, and it's fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, that game I know is very important uh, with Anita Sarkeesian, the feminist mm-hmm. frequency crowd. Right, uh, right. I, you know, it, it was a game that was released, I think it was like 04, 05. It came during my dark ages <laughs> with video games. Yeah, I was in undergrad. I did not play any games besides NCAA football <laughs> during that time period. I played nothing from like 2000 until 2007 or so. I didn't play a single video game. Um, and I, I went back and played it. I, I think I got a PS3 copy through PlayStation Now and or PlayStation Plus rather. And, you know, I could see the attraction. The storyline was really strong. Uh, but mechanically, I think it's a really tough game uh, to go back to. It's the third person action game in the mid 2000s, which, you know, I'm sure you can think of all the and that was, kind of that problems was, that go with that. That was a particularly bad period too, you know, because there's even games from the mid 90s you can kind of live with, you know. Um, yeah. I, I have to confess that's regularly a hurdle for me. I, I just I'll own up to it. Like if the, if, if it's just not yeah. easy to play, I give up on it. Um, yeah. But then, at this yeah. point, I would just go on YouTube and watch a Let's Play. Essentially, I know it's 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 such an interesting cultural turn. The last thing I'll say about E three, uh, I really want Cyberpunk 2077 to be good. Oh man, I really yeah. want that yeah. game to be good. Same here. It just I mean I haven't yeah. you know it just looks great. Um, I really want it to be good. So I do. I do too. And uh, you know, it's such a. It's kind of an important game for me because I've got. Uh, I, you know, I teach classes in the history right. department at Louisiana Tech, but also in the cyber engineering department, and I teach a class called Cyber Futures, in which we look at kind of uh, where trends in cyberspace are going, kind of future problems. Uh, but then also we have this section of the course, and I have the students write papers on this on. Uh, kind of the imaginings of uh, fiction about where cyberspace is going. And I could see this game being added to that collection of movies and books and other video games that kind of look at our modern perceptions of, you know, the future of uh, technology uh, going forward. So I hope it's good in that sense. Uh, Of course, it is uh, being developed by the same team that did The Witcher. So mm-hmm. it's probably going to be a game that lasts for 50 or 60 hours. So I don't know how well that'll work in the confines of a, a quarter system course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe if we just dedicate an entire class to the to that game, uh, it would work. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated about that one too. Uh, okay, well, I guess that does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me, John, and helping me get through all this craziness for me three. Yeah, thanks, Bob. You know, a lot of fun and it's a lot of good games. You know, I, I <laughs> it sounds so cheesy, a lot of good games, but it's true. There's this, you know, a lot of stuff to get really, really excited about. And for us personally, a lot of a lot of stuff we're gonna be able to cover on the channel. Really excited about it. 
so much. I mean, you know, history games kind of leading the way, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, history being optioned in other mediums, you know, you obviously think about historical films and books, but it really seems like it's at the top mm-hmm. of most people's minds, or most people, most developers' minds when they think about video games. So it's really exciting. It's great for us. Great for the show. Uh, okay. So with that, until next time, goodbye.